0: Ola Comrades, this is just an announcement that we've finished transcribing 10 plus hours of anti-fascist and anti-racist interviews. These range from a Black Lives Matter activist in Brooklyn to a migrant rights advocate in New Zealand among other writers and activists. Thanks to our generous donors, we were able to pay transcribers for over half of these transcribing the remaining in-house. You can find a master post of the transcripts pinned to the top of our blog at jetpack.zoob.net. Solidarity, good night, and good luck.
1: are all interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in
2: the future. Sarah, Connor, and co. just have to move on from individual terrorism to expropriating the weapons industry.
0: Content warning, fascism.
2: Hello comrades and welcome to the final part of our Red Brown Zombies 3 parter. If you listened to the last two, thanks for sticking with us. I'm Annie White and we're on the line to my criminally cute co-host Derek Johnson.
0: <laughs> <coughs> Thank you Annie uh, for our concluding part. We have a local area network report on the history of the New Zealand far-right, from guest Tyler West. And finally, a review of the new Terminator Dark Fate. The slogan of no fate from Terminator 2 was a foundational concept for this podcast, so it's got big shoes to fill. But first, some recs, Ani?
2: Yeah, we mostly tend to recommend more fanish or bread-chewy content but for me personally keeping up with general news and current affairs outside my political bubble requires some discipline and on that note i've been getting back into al jazeera videos on youtube they do 25 minute panels on questions like i'm quoting titles here why is the world burning which is about climate change what are the roots of chile's economic inequality and has the world forgotten cashmere they often bring on academics and activists not just the usual think tank talking heads although sometimes you do get tiresome think tank hacks for example some of their reporting on russia does fall into this trap but in general as news and current affairs go it's pretty solid You get more background in those 25-minute segments than you often do from mainstream media. Uh, Derek, any ricks?
0: Yeah, I have a piece on Bill Weinberg's Counter Vortex blog, Bolivia, Lithium Interests at Play in Evo's Ouster? Question mark. Questioning all the Bolivian coup lithium conspiracy theories, being pushed by red brown sources tied to Russian propaganda and uh, campus and the unc- how it's being uncritically spread on the left. Yeah,
2: I'd also say his earlier report uh, on uh, you know Avo ousted in a civic coup was a pretty good piece. It was uh, you know it was just a good basic rundown uh, of all the all the sort of core info in the situation uh, and that's just to to give my little two cents about the whole thing i basically think uh AVO pursuing extractive capitalism has kind of split the movement and this is this is a right-wing coup clearly the coup actors are not acting in indigenous interests we've just heard the, cabinet uh this will be about a month late by the time this broadcast but their cabinet so unsurprisingly doesn't have any indigenous people they've been assaulting indigenous activists they obviously took down the indigenous flag uh they but like it. yeah uh yeah but um uh yeah i mean it, there could have been a more united resistance to this if Avo hadn't uh pursued extractive capitalism among among other issues and basically split the movement that that uh, got him into power
0: and now everybody's gonna have to fight back against a very violent fascist uh mm. group uh government here uh with the full military and police back in it as the end probably uh vigilante uh paramilitaries and and vigilant you know people going after uh, the indigenous and the left uh, right now already uh, they're, the military is going door to door pulling the indigenous and uh, protesters and the le- left protesters and leftists out of their homes they obviously fear the uh, resistance to the coup and uh, they're taking them out and I think Maybe part of uh, why the coup happened right now is because if you look at the surrounding countries, the indigenous uh, movements and in the left are pushing the governments uh, to to do uh, more progressive things. They're pushing presidents out of power. You know, they got the president was in Chile to uh, adopt a new constitution, and maybe they saw the The threat of uh, indigenous organizing in uh, Bolivia and these right-wing forces in the go- in the military and outside the government uh, decided that okay now's the time to seize power and now they're going after uh, the indigenous communities who are going to have to fight like hell. Uh, already, the uh, president, who's being recognized by our government and is now recognizing the the new president over in venezuela so we we see how the uh the dictators all recognize each other (laughs) russia also
2: is recognizing this uh this new leader so you know for anyone who yeah anyone who thinks uh this is some kind of you know that russia is some kind of bastion against u.s imperialism it's just another case of this convergence between the Trump administration and the uh, and the Putin re- administration.
0: Yeah, and that uh, really shows uh, that uh, the Morales administration, uh, being so close to the P- the Putin regime, that meant nothing to didn't save Putin them. or Russia, yeah. and didn't save them. And uh, this is this is not good. Uh, we're seeing the the failure of the. Uh, of the pink tide and now we're seeing fascism retake uh, central and latin america and this is uh very frightening for for the people living there okay i want to recognize i want to recommend over at the anarcho-syndicalist blog anti-systemic uh there's a new piece on current events it's not very long it's called the pink tide turns black the failure of the two step strategy in Bolivia.
3: The X in Xmas is a substitute for the extracting of surplus value produced by the toils of the working class.
2: Welcome to the November Local Area Network Report. This month we're doing something a little different with guest Tyler West giving us a history of far-right movements in Aotearoa and New Zealand. Tyler is a historian and archivist with an interest in the history of the radical left, organised labour, social movements, fascism, and fringe politics in New Zealand. He writes for various publications, along with his blog, The Ice Block, that's a block with a C, uh, and can be found on Twitter, uh, at Comrade Block, again, Block with a C, uh, and we'll link those in the description. So, welcome Tyler.
3: Hey, uh, thanks Arnie. Um, I'm gonna jump straight into the spiel yeah. and just kind of let it all through um, all at once. So, uh, due to not having a mass fascist movement during the classical era of fascism, It's been a pretty long-held common belief that there never really was New Zealand fascism of note, or New Zealand fascists of note, or anything sort of similar to it or adjacent to it, just like uh, very, very fringe uh, individual notables, but nothing of real note. Uh, But that simply isn't the case. Uh, And even in the era of fascism, uh, even before it actually, uh, worrying trends were both present in New Zealand and popular. So without going all the way back to the initial arrival of British colonists, which is where the story really starts, obviously, um, I think the best point is to kick off with Premier Alfred Domet, who uh, was the uh, premier who was serving at the beginning of, uh, and holds a great deal of responsibility for, to be honest, the Waikato War. He was a firm believer that Maori were, were, in his ideas, too savage to ever be equal to civilized men um and that was a view shared by many at the time but it's one which the aftermath of the waikato war helped solidify far more so than the the military sort of ambiguous results of the northern and taranaki wars um where local maori uh kind of came out of the end of it without really having been fully defeated in the field um and especially it's worth noting not by british soldiers either um so by the end of the 19th century, you know, Maori resistance to British rule had been militarily defeated after another 20 years, another you know, sort of 10 to 20 years of warfare at that point. And pacifist resistance, uh, you know, most famously with Parehaka, had been smashed with pretty brutal force. Um, it became commonly accepted among Pākehā society that Maori were a, a quote-unquote dying race. Who were doomed to either die out or be fully assimilated into white society now obviously this didn't wind up happening but at the very tail end of the 19th century and into the first decade or two of the 20th it was a very common belief among pakeha that that was the case settler colonial state continued its act of sort of othering non-white uh inhabitants of new zealand by switching to immigrants into the latter half of the 19th and 20th centuries um Principally, this was expressed by uh, these leagues that were dedicated to excluding primarily Asian immigrants uh, at the level of civil society uh, and by these ever increasingly restrictive immigration controls at the level of state policy. Eventually, these policies kind of coalesced into what's now called the White New Zealand Policy um, and a short rundown of all these different pieces of legislation that led up to it would include uh, restrictions in the gum digging industry which were aimed at uh, curtailing Dalmatian although sometimes referred to as Croatian, Dalmatians in Croatia today, or even just Yugoslav uh, immigration. Uh, There were acts that were passed in 1898, 1908 and 1910 aimed at doing that, gum digging being the main industry where local Dalmatians were working. There were poll taxes and restrictions on the number of migrants based on ship tonnage in 1881, 1888 and 1896 that eventually reached uh, a 100 pound per head and just one Chinese immigrant allowed on a ship per 200 tons of um, ship tonnage in total. There were restrictions on the entry of uh, quote-unquote Assyrian hawkers, which were functionally aimed at um, sort of Levantine Arabs, I guess. Uh, that was, There were restrictions brought in under a bill called the Undesirable Hawkers Prevention Bill in 1896, uh, there are requirements that non-British immigrants must take their application in a European language enacted by the Immigration Restriction Act of 1899, and that was designed specifically to reduce immigration of non-white British subjects uh, in spite of opposition by British officials who remember that New Zealand was just another colony and they uh, didn't want there to be any specific acts of legislation that would keep out other British subjects from entering New Zealand. Uh, now, also alter- alterations to the naturalisation laws to reduce and eventually just end all pathways of naturalisation for Chinese immigrants in 1892 and 1908. Um, and obviously, the, the most famous of these laws, the ones that targeted uh, Chinese immigrants into New Zealand, because there were just so many, and the, the panic around Chinese immigration was... Uh, so fierce across the country uh, in spite of all you know all reason given the tiny number of chinese people who are actually living here even if there was something to worry about in the first place Um, but this framework of legislation which made up the white new zealand policy was kind of finally formalized in uh, a piece called the immigration restriction amendment act 1920 which created a requirement to apply for permanent residency before arrival in new zealand and that effectively handed the Minister of Customs direct discretion over every single applicant um, to come to New Zealand. Now, this resulted in a near total stop to all non-white immigration for about two decades. Um, it was bolstered by the Immigration Restriction Amendment Act 1931, which reduced uh, continental European immigration. Um, and in 1919, the Undesirable Immigrants Exclusion Act 1919 had already sort of drastically decreased those numbers Um, by adding barriers to people from the former German and Austro-Hungarian empires. The 1931 Act had a very specific effect of making it extremely hard for uh, Jews to immigrate to New Zealand during the 1930s, and that was in uh, large part responsible for an extremely small number of Jewish refugees making it to New Zealand prior to the outbreak of World War II. Uh, in spite of the, the really incredible barriers to entry that were already in place before World War I, uh, public support was still in favour of even tougher restrictions, which led to the formation of an organisation called the White New Zealand League in 1925, crucially five years after that piece of legislation which effectively stopped all non-white immigration into New Zealand bar extremely specific circumstances. This league was more notable than others which had existed going back decades. They all had names like the anti-Chinese or anti-Asian or white race leagues, uh, for three reasons. First, it was formed well after the 1920 Act had passed, despite the fact that by then, as I just said, it was near impossible for anyone not of uh, Anglo ancestry to actually move to New Zealand. Um, It was very difficult even for people from the continental Europe, although it did happen, um... The second is the, the sheer scale of its support. When it sent out a letter to 200 local bodies over 1926 asking them to support the aims of a white-only nation, 160 of them, representing about 670,000 people, which is almost 50% of the population, replied to that letter posit- positively. Uh, third is its explicit support for eugenics and uh, quote-unquote scientific arguments for white supremacy which others had done, especially the White Race League at the start of the 19 uh, but far less forcefully and with far less reach than the White New Zealand League managed to get. Nothing more clearly states um, nor, more clearly states the sort of forcefulness of their argument and their commitment to what we would today recognise as outright white supremacy as the League's 14, wo- 14 words-esque uh, motto your obligations to pros to posterity are great your inheritance was a white new zealand keep it so for your children's children and the empire now this deeply deeply xenophobic atmosphere uh at the end of the 18th and beginning uh, end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th centuries led to the infamous murder in 1905 of an elderly disabled chinese miner, joe cum young in Hining street wellington now the killer lionel terry uh, was an ex-military British migrant from a, a sort of middling merchant family in Britain. Uh, he had just finished a tour across the length of the North, North Island promoting his anti-Semitic and, and virulently Sinophobic kind of verse Come manifesto The Shadow. Uh, a letter he submitted to the press the evening of the murder stated that he had committed the murder to promote his manifesto, so there's no... Um, no real questions surrounding the murder itself and his intentions with it now new zealand in spite of fertile ground for it never really had a traditional fascist movement in the 1930s which is where kind of the myth that new zealand has never swung to that kind of extreme or that that kind of extreme thinking uh, of the right has never been popular in new zealand kind of comes from Uh, there was the new zealand legion uh, which was born of a coalition of right-wing forces during the great depression But it didn't evolve into becoming a fully paramilitary organization. And uh, despite the fact that it it organized itself with sort of military distinctions, it was broken into divisions and whatnot, um, it didn't really have any aims of any sort of revolutionary aims. It was fairly committed to democracy uh, and it didn't peddle anywhere near as much as anyone else around at the time in other parts of the world. Uh, in actual sort of fascist mythology the social credit movement did become quite large at this time and that harbored a considerable anti-semitic underbelly um it did actually have a fairly considerable amount of influence on the labor party at the time of the first labor government in 1935 uh because uh social credit was very widely believed in a lot of farming communities and the social credit movement going into sort of this unspoken alliance with labor around the mid 1930s was a big part of why small farmers supported labor for the first sort of couple of uh, governments from 1935 onward towards world war ii Uh, social credit did remain a fairly serious force in new zealand politics via the formation of the social credit political league in 1954 right through into the 1980s and until 1972 the party leadership at least tolerated anti-semitism without much complaint within its ranks, alongside much more openly supporting for white rule across southern Africa, uh, which is something that people don't really remember about um, social credit when they think back to its position as this kind of quasi-third party during the first-past-the-post era, was that it was actually quite in favour of, uh, of maintaining all contact with apartheid rule in southern Africa. After the rise of uh, Bruce Beaton, though, many of the old guard did split from the party into various other organizations in the aftermath of him taking power in 1972. But anti-Semitism continued to stir within the party well into the 1980s. I'd really suggest a book called Social Credit Inside and Out by Michael Shepard that has a chapter as a Jewish man in a high-ranking position in the party of experiencing anti-Semitism within social credit through the 1970s and into the start of the 1980s. Uh, the loss of leadership in social credit led to the almost the kind of the founding of the New Zealand League of Rights, a cousin to the Australian organisation of the same name, which had on sort of on-off existed in New Zealand earlier for a few years, but in reality it was with that exodus of social credit members that it actually came into being um, as a fully functioning and definitive organisation that you can point to and say, it's definitely active, it's definitely meeting from this point onward. Now, through the 1970s into the 1980s, the League of Rights was pretty inarguably the largest and most influential force on the far right in New Zealand. Uh, It formed numerous front groups to act in coalition with more mainstream conservative organisations on issues from homosexual decriminalisation to abortion to promoting sporting contacts with apartheid South Africa. Uh, The League peaked at upwards of a thousand members and paying supporters in the 1980s. Uh, and it had an operational budget estimated at $50,000 New Zealand around the time of the 1980s uh, that allowed them to, they, they had uh, certain election years where they had an election pamphlet and they would print hundreds of thousands of copies at it. They had a pretty substantial, uh, pretty substantial sort of propaganda outlet for an organization that wasn't that popular, but did certainly have a thousand or two thousand supporters across the country. In um, his 1987 book, The Politics of Nostalgia, sociologist Paul Spoonley identified almost a hundred what he considered far-right organisations formed in New Zealand just between 1954 and 1987. Um, many more, obviously, have formed in the interim 32 years, although I'm not aware of any major survey of them existing. Uh, the first of these, though, founded in 1954 was a group called the League of Empire Loyalists, um, they acted mostly as a loose support network for the British organisation of the same name, but I think they really need to be raised here because they are a direct parent of a much more familiar organisation to us here now, the New Zealand National Front. Uh, Alongside the National Front, uh, Colin King Ansell's National Socialist Party brought this indisputably organised, neo-Nazi, genuinely fascist politics to New Zealand in the late 1960s. Um, Although they were distinct from the more generally reactionary groups like the League of Rights, or a lot of single-issue groups uh, such as the various pro-apartheid lobby organizations. The neo-Nazis embedded themselves in the extreme right of New Zealand politics from this point on, and I think crucially it needs to be said they never left. There have continuously been neo-fascist and neo-Nazi organizations operating in New Zealand from about 1967-68 onward um inarguably that kind of politics from that point onward which is now more than 50 years uh much more could be said on that but with sort of a short overview of new zealand's far right it seems fitting to end on the last bump for new zealand fascism and that's the rise of white power street gang of a white power street gang movement in the 1990s Uh, now groups like this had existed going back to the very late 1970s with names like uh, white lightning and things like that that you know would would appeal to you know apolitical probably kind of reactionary sort of young white person it's got very hard edge sound to it and it comes about at the same time as you know heavy metal is getting big uh it's got some of that hard edge to it that would appeal to someone um if they you know maybe didn't know better about the jewish question or something like that um much and i say that because much of the white power bonehead scene was only ever quasi-political it was a very deeply reactionary response to uh, by dispossessed white working class youth to the economic turmoil of the 1980s and 1990s Uh, but nevertheless even though a lot of these people sort of eventually saw the road out and and left the movement um, organised fascism in the late 1990s and 2000s grew out of it nevertheless and pulled a lot of people from that era who never saw the light of day and, and dropped it or perhaps remained involved uh, in gangs in New Zealand, but dropped the white power element, um, because they just didn't believe it anymore. Now, the most notorious from this period, I think, is certainly the South Island prison gang, Fourth Reich, founded in 1994 and effectively shuttered in the early 2000s. Uh, Members of Fourth Reich would go on to commit at least three ideologically motivated murders, um, and they have numerous assaults. And murders attributed to their members or to them as an organisation. Add on top of that, in the period that they are active. Now, Fourth Reich largely dissolved into its sort of just into its own violent tendencies. It couldn't go on anymore. Pretty much all of its members wound up just being put in isolation because they were too violent. Uh, but the likes of the National Front, which was buoyed also by all these new recruits from the 1990s, they continued well into New Zealand into the 2000s in New Zealand. Now, although fascism in New Zealand has withdrawn in recent years uh, to an extent up until fairly recently, it was only 15 years ago that the National Front was run out of Wellington after a spate of assaults against immigrants and vandalism of Jewish graves before being beaten into retreat by, you know, a massive anti-fascist protest in 2004, which has basically gone down uh, in history as kind of like a legend of the time. Uh, Indeed, within the last decade or so, Prominent white power veteran Kyle Chapman, who traces himself back to that 1990 surge, formed the now defunct right wing resistance in Christchurch, which became notorious for conducting street patrols in immigrant neighborhoods and conducting armed survivalist training out in the bush. Now, realistically, these groups have struggled uh, for relevance post World War II, but they've always hovered way closer. than people like to think. They've hovered way, way closer to the mainstream of New Zealand politics, to major organisations and movements, than anyone likes to think. And as the Fourth Reich in particular, but various other smaller organisations like the National Front demonstrate, the risk of extreme violence has always been more real than anyone wants to admit.
2: Yeah, thanks for that Tyler uh, and just on a biographical note uh, I, was in, I was a teenager living in Wellington uh, at the time of those attacks on the Jewish gravestones in 2004 uh, it was a pretty scary time you had National Front who had quite a base in, in the heart um, working with Destiny Church uh, which is a very conservative Christian church here Ironically, with a strong Māori and Polynesian congregation working with white supremacists against the gays at the time, it was the time of the civil union bill, and they were organising around that, among other things. Uh, And on the flip side, my school at the time, Wellington High, uh, mobilised against the right, so Destiny was actually using our school halls during the weekends. And as a fairly liberal school with openly queer students, people weren't happy about that. So there were a number of smaller protests against Destiny using our halls. It was a funny time. The principal supported uh, our right to protest, she said, but uh, continued to take Destiny's money. It was quite uh, an interesting case of kind of liberal hypocrisy. Uh, and then, more notably, when, when Destiny and the National Front held their Enough is Enough rally against civil unions, uh, there was a schoolwide walkout as part of a mass counter-protest. So it was a scary time, but also a fairly inspiring time with these, these mobilizations happening in my formative years. Uh, and after a number of clashes, which sort of got smaller, but but there were some quite militant clashes, particularly between anarchists and uh, and the National Front, uh, as you say, Kyle Chapman uh, retreated to Christchurch, and the National Front in the Wellington region, thankfully, crumbled. Uh, so, yeah, I have a question about that. You kind of touched on it, but... Uh, yeah, in 2004, the National Front and Destiny seemed like a real threat. Uh, they turned out eventually to be a bit of a damp squib in the end when uh, Destiny's first electoral attempt failed miserably. Uh, but do you have any thoughts on their strengths in 2004 relative to now? So are they, are they stronger now with the international rise of the far right, the alt-right, the, the uh, as, as it calls itself?
3: I don't know if they're necessarily stronger in raw numbers. Um, Mm. Definitely, I mean, like, Destiny's back at it again now, and the Destiny congregation is much smaller now than it was back then. I think it's about half the size than it was back then. Um, And while you definitely have all of these kind of newer, sort of generically far-right, but echoing a lot of the specifics of fascism without the aesthetic people around... Um, they, they definitely exist probably in greater numbers in New Zealand now than they did 15 years ago, uh, but with things like the National Front sort of retreating and either crumbling when it lost its web hosting domain entirely or sort of going a bit underground, um, they don't seem to be as well connected now as they were then, even though you have these much more loose coalitions drawing together. I think geographically um, they're more spread in their ability to do things, though. Uh, And going back to my point about the League of Rights sort of latching on to more generically conservative movements that existed in the 1980s, I think it's worth noting that um, people on the, you know, a handful of luminaries from the old National Front days, as well as sort of these newer young alt-right kids, uh, and... um, sort of these conservatives who are going down a much darker path like there's a small circle of sort of New Zealand right-wing YouTubers that exists uh they are themselves figuring out how to latch onto things um in the same way that the old league of rights used to like you see a lot of them turning up at uh demonstrations about gun reform um and those kind of happen all over the place in relatively small numbers like a few dozen people but they are happening sort of all across the country Whereas a National Front could draw 50 people to something, but only that. They had to fly people in, or sort of do it in Wellington where they had the people requisite there already, to ever manage to get even a handful of people to a particular event. Whereas these new groups don't have to fly people in from all over the place. They kind of have these more decentralized, but probably somewhat larger networks wherever they happen to live. Um... And regarding the rise of the international, or the international rise of of various far-right groups, I think they're taking a lot of inspiration from that. I don't know if it's necessarily making them stronger, but it it might be a factor in emboldening them now, because they can point to various governments that people don't have the same sort of ultra polarized opinion now as they did of sort of apartheid governments back in the day because they just don't know as much they sort of they know that for example uh hungary's government is bad but it's not like there's a mass campaign against new zealand sporting contacts with hungary at the moment like there was uh in the 60s and 70s and 80s with south africa uh so i think they can draw inspiration from things and do it a little bit more covertly. Uh, and without drawing quite as much attention to themselves and that in of itself might be a bit more dangerous uh, in terms of just their ability to grow than was the case in the early 2000s where they were drawing on um, they were using you know neo-fascist imagery even though from time to time Carl Chapman would try and clean them up but it would never work but they were using neo-fascist imagery and whatnot uh, and presenting you know an extreme figure in order to draw in these kind of dispossessed white kids who you know most of them would probably stick around and then bugger off when they realize that this is actually kind of fucked um but you know that was kind of the only place they were really recruiting from and that was always a diminishing pool because it was so subcultural
2: yeah uh that that sort of fits with fits with my impression that there there's these newer groups but it's, it hasn't necessarily been a substantial growth. Then certainly the older groups uh, are weaker than they were in two thousand and four. Uh, you know, particularly National Front and uh, Carl Chapman's new right wing resistance and that. But um, also this month we've been discussing red brown alliances. Uh, is there any notable history of that in Aotearoa and New Zealand?
3: I'd say kind of. Um... I'm not aware in any of my study of any organizations going down the LaRouche path, for example, in New Zealand. Um mm. you occasionally find there's a handful of people who wound up in New Zealand's sort of new right in the nineteen eighties, but that's more of a libertarian thing than a far right thing, who did were members of the sort of Trotskyist Orgs or occasionally the odd dead member in the sixties but there was never anything particularly formal and not on a not on a large scale or with notable organizations peddling in that stuff when they really shouldn't be. Like you might see in the US with, say, uh, Party for Socialism and Liberation sort of having dealings with um, far-right characters from other countries that you could write off if you're really charitable as just not knowing, but it's something that they should really be looking into and not doing. Um, or, for example, in... Uh, russia where you actually have formally red brown organizations from sort of strasserists or the national bolshevik with a strasserist or national bolshevik background but i do think that i guess on the kind of populist left uh sort of post-social democratic there were some movements that did uh It wasn't that there were formal red-brown alliances, it was more that these movements were sort of left-wing movements but kind of in name only, and they were so broad church that you did have people who were pushing anti-Semitic stuff or pushing Sinophobic stuff sort of coming in and not really being chased out with as much energy as they should have been. Um, I mean, you know, personally, that for me is the TPPA movement because that was kind of where I cut my activist teeth and then decided that maybe activism maybe i wasn't quite the, the organizer i thought i was when i was 18 and thought really highly of myself um but i i remember um for example right wing resistance turning up to a demo and while sort of the local social the local iso and the local anarchists who i kind of filtering around at the time um weren't having a bar of it you had a fair chunk of the crowd who were sort of, they were pissed off when a bunch of us sort of chased the chased the right-wing resistance guys away. It was like four of them, and it was like 30 of us. Um, but, you know, when, when the anarchists were kind of throwing glitter on them and spitting on them and harassing them, and then the sort of the ISO guys ran around and sort of rocked up the crowd to chant and tell them to fuck off, um, you did have a fair chunk of the crowd who were standing nearby who were like, oh, no, they're just good patriots. They're here for the same reasons as us. Um, mm mm-hmm. And I think it's-
2: yeah, we talked about that in our, our interview with Daphne as well. That uh, that happened elsewhere in the country. Uh, I, I know in Wellington, there was maybe two of us trying to force uh, force some fascists out, and the organisers didn't didn't support us in that. But uh, yeah, um, we we sort of uh, had the impression that you know it's not necessarily straight up red brownism but there is in Daphne's terms a certain amount of conservative leftism where where which doesn't offer really a defense against fascism even if it's not explicitly fascist or aligned with fascism
3: yeah I think I think it's in that is where I agree with Daphne because you can see the same sort of thing happening um With uh, the movement against state asset sales around 2010, Mm -hmm. you occasionally sit, you'll find sort of a couple, you know, if you go through like old press releases and arguments on on forums and Facebook groups, you do find the odd, oh, here's a bunch of photos of dudes with national front gear or right-wing resistance gear turning up, but they've got like a swastika tattoo and no one's really doing anything about it. Even though sort of the formal socialist organizations usually um will with that sort of chase them out um or sort of at least get in their faces and make sure they have a bad day uh i think what happens is that sort of the body of those movements tends to be a more kind of generic populist uh sort of social democratic um i think is the main thing is that it, it's so, they're usually social democratic but in a very sort of incoherent um nostalgic way that just wants some some of the games that were made in the post-world war ii era back and don't really have much of an analysis beyond that and they can sort of lend themselves to not really recognizing when um someone is making sort of a coded anti-semitic argument or a coded sinophobic argument um because they're kind of just there to pull back something that used to exist they're not really there because they have an extremely thought out position on the movement they're in whereas with you know pretty much any socialist group they'll take a position on a movement and usually at least the leadership will have a pretty thought out position on it um whether or not you agree with the position it'll be like a a thought out position on what it is and how you should interact with it and that will kind of flow through the membership um usually but i think where you have something approaching red brown is where you have all of these people who are kind of well-meaning um but they are uh sort of only there because they're kind of old school keynesian area liberals or they're um sort of social democratic and in inclination but themselves are not really sort of not really involved in like the green party or the alliance back in the day for example or involved in kind of um actual political organizing just kind of there because they support the movement, you can get a kind of layer of people who might not really recognize far-right stuff when it appears, because far-right stuff, even at it's most obvious, is at least going to try and wear the skin of the movement it's in. Um, And I think that's the danger, is not taking seriously how many people are like that, uh, how many people who could earnestly mistake this stuff for being sort of genuine social democratic patriotism and not see why that's actually uh, could be a dangerous thing.
2: Yeah. Uh, I mean, do you think maybe after Christchurch there might be more awareness of this on the broad left? Do you have an impression of that? Uh,
3: I think overall, yes. I think there will be. Um, Because I think there's going to be just just among, like um, when you have sort of a big, wide, broad movement, um, I think more people are going to be aware that, yes, this can happen here and has a history here. And while they're not really sort of looking out for it um, necessarily within the movements they're in, they might not sort of see how they might accidentally agree with the reactionary group who, for opportunistic reasons or just because the movement is very broad and has sort of broadly, you know, acceptable things that pretty much anyone can pick up on, not see how they might agree with someone who is either, you know, an actual covertly trying to recruit the fascists or just happens to have picked up a grab bag of, codedly anti-semitic conspiratorial ideas but i think most people will just sort of recognize those ideas at face value more often now so they're not necessarily on their guard looking out for it but they'll kind of see it when it happens more often i do think that's going to be the case
2: Mm. uh thanks for coming on tyler um you can access more of tyler's work at uh, the ice block which again uh without a k uh, and on Twitter, at, at Comrade Block, And do you want to talk about, you've got a talk coming up, what are the details for that? Uh,
3: yeah, I'm going to be um, speaking in Adelaide at a conference, which you do need to buy tickets for, unfortunately. I've got a couple family members who think they can just rock up, and I need to tell them that they have to shell out $20 for the ticket. But um, there's a conference in Adelaide. Uh, if you can go, I would recommend you going, because it's drawing a lot of the best people in the field from around Australia. Uh, and me as well, I'm kind of like the New Zealand carry-on in this case, uh, called uh, Histories of of Fascism in the Far Right in Australasia. It's something like that. It's at Flinders University, um, and it's kind of a national conference on the topic. There's I've seen now the sort of absolute draft um, conference plan, and it does look like there's going to be heaps of really interesting um, material being talked about there. So if you happen to be in Adelaide and happened might want to drop $20 on a ticket uh you could uh come along and I'm going to be talking in much more depth specifically about the international connections that New Zealand's far right has had which is something that I didn't really get a chance to go into here but um uh, you have a lot of just sort of individual connections to um the far right in other countries particularly Australia the UK and the US obviously Australia and the UK mostly um but a couple of other ones that have existed among the far right going back far beyond the existence of even the term alt right going back many decades um which is kind of going to be the topic of my uh paper if you happen to be in adelaide come along and if not hit me up on if if you don't want to go to the conference but you happen to be in adelaide then hit me up on twitter because chances are i'll be free to grab a drink or something (laughs)
2: Yeah. What were the dates for that again, sir?
3: Uh, the conference is on the 2nd of December. Um, cool. I, I think there's like a, a dinner the night before or something like that, but the conference itself is 2nd of December at Flinders University in Adelaide, and I'll be around for a few days to a week beforehand if you happen to be in Adelaide and want to catch up.
2: Cool. All right. Thanks uh, Thanks for coming on. And, um, yeah, as always, Kia kaha, comrades. Good night and good luck.
3: Wow.
0: This is going to be a major spoiler warning for this movie. Terminator: Dark Fate has re- received a mixed reaction from fans and a lot of hate from the naysayers. Uh, but your hosts are in agreement that it's a return to form. It's this is technically the sixth Terminator movie but it narratively follows on from Terminator two retconning three to five out of existence. This is possibly the second or third part three, depending on how you count the different movies, the right. TV show or the ride T T two, three day. And, uh, mm-hmm. but, uh, this is notable for the return of, Linda Hamilton uh, to the role of Sarah Connor, who was of course the lead in the first two movies, James Cameron, who wrote and directed the first two also returns, but only as a producer and story developer this time with Deadpool director, Tim Miller, taking over director duties. Also contributing to the script are Charles H. Eggley, Josh Friedman, David Goyer, Billy Ray, and Justin Rhodes. Six writers isn't always a good sign, but aside from Goyer, these are some of the best screenwriters working in Hollywood.
2: Yeah, and one of them, Josh Friedman, was a writer for the TV show Sarah Connor Chronicles, which incidentally is a far better continuation of T2 than any of the movies before Dark Fate.
0: I concur. Uh, so what did you think I know you liked it.
2: Yeah, I'll get the bad out of the way first, and mostly consists of an old millennial kvetching that they don't make them like they're used to. Uh, T2 is one of the greatest movies ever made. There's no following in those footsteps. If they were going to make another blockbuster feature entry, this is about the best they could have pulled off but it still inevitably hit some redundant narrative beats with diminishing returns. I didn't cry when it hit the exact beats that always make me cry in T2. Uh, Also, I've often said T2 and Jurassic Park hit the perfect early balance of CGI and practical effects, where CGI was used for effects that couldn't be done better practically. But from about the Star Wars prequels on, increasingly the climax of every movie including Dark Fate is basically animated. And There's nothing wrong with an animated movie, but it's not what I came for. I kind of prefer the demolition derby approach to action where you see actual things get smashed. Even the best CGI often feels abstract, as I found with the plane sequence in Mm -hmm. Dark Fate. It's sort of quite disconnected and not not really corporeal Uh, but with that out of the way uh, within the confines of a narratively redundant CGI blockbuster Dark Fate does everything right I think Uh, it runs with the very taut chase movie structure of the first two Uh, and Deadpool director Tim Miller brings a dynamism to the action that's been missing for a long time from the series Uh, It also hit the spot in terms of theme and character development, helped along by the return of Linda Hamilton, who's the soul of the series. Her badass Mama Bear role in T2 is of course definitive, and it's just great having her back, even if her hard-arsery can can be a bit hard to take in this one. Uh, Grace, as played by Mackenzie Davis, was also badass and stepped into that mama bear role, despite not being conventionally feminine. And she kind of, because she's taking on more of the sort of maternal role this time around, kind of calls out Sarah Connor for, for, you know, going a bit far down the hard-ass route. Anyway, I'm frankly glad the previous sequels three to five have been retconned out. One thing I hated about T3 and Salvation is that they negated T2's message of no fate. While this did follow an essentially similar narrative logic, the apocalypse being deferred rather than cancelled, it's also a bit different in that they do prevent Skynet, and Sarah underlines that as a victory. Even if it's not a, a happily ever after, the future can be
0: changed. Well, I knew you'd love that, and the racing Skynet vindicates T2, and uh, I th- I really have to agree with the CG ending stuff, the CG, uh, you know, it was such a cacophony at, towards the end of this with the airplane getting to the hydro dam and everything, that it just was really an overwhelming of my, my senses, and I really just mm. could not tell what was up and down and what was going on until they they finally got to to more stable ground towards the end.
2: Yeah, it's kinda hard to hard to relate to. Uh, and yeah, like um in terms of the no fate thing that's literally etched into my arm. And I'm all for Danny's more strongly worded variation, Fuck Fate. On that note, I'm also all for Danny, as played by Natalia Reyes, aka the new John Connor.
0: Yeah, um People are very mixed on how they, they uh, have received her. Uh, I was noticing in uh, one review, Jay on Red Letter Media was saying that uh, while while this was like a okay or entertaining movie, it was saying that like Danny was unfortunately a forgettable character uh, given her importance, and I, I really call bullshit on that.
2: Yeah, I think she suffered initially from being basically Sarah Connor in T1, the untrained innocent who has to be protected, or maybe John in T2, even though he has a bit more training and preparation. That role of being the person who has to be protected can be kind of a thankless role. But like Sarah came into her own after Reese's death, Danny also comes into her own with that great fuck fate
0: flash forward. She stepped up, and the ending twist is that she becomes a badass in the future because she was trained by Sarah Connor. And thus, she trained Grace, who came back to protect her. So I I think the the little loop there with the time travel even with the with the changes and uh in the future i think that was the last bit of uh keeping it within uh you know having to do with the the first two movies and a continuation of the same franchise i don't think it was a total divorce or a reboot from the rest of the movies in that way
2: kind of comes back to sarah
0: yeah. yeah, by making her so vital and important to the new leader of the Resistance and to that future after defeating Skynet, I think that is very under underrated and hasn't been really taken in. And uh, I I'd wish that they would have shown more of her hunting the Terminators, actually. At least just one kill.
2: Mm. Yeah, I agree. But the sort of driving off into the sunset after agreeing to save baby grace was i think it was the right way to finish i agree it's it's interesting how it comes back to sarah as kind of the the hyper vigilant prepper mum kind of thing who sort of trains you to fight robots uh you know as john connor experienced it's actually a pretty traumatic thing when you think about it this parental figure whose whose whole thing is just training you to kill and like survive the apocalypse. But I'm all for uh, Latina John Connor and the team liberating detainees, uh, so correction, prisoners on their way across the border. That was cool.
0: Yeah, she didn't cross the border. The border crossed her. And I clapped when Rev-9 killed those border cops in the concentration camp. And I really liked when uh, Grace asked about the prisoners, Uh, the one soldier corrected her that they were, quote, detainees.
2: Yes, political correctness gone mad. I always liked that Robert Patrick was a cop. John Connor with the public enemy shirt with a cop in the crosshairs, uh, and now Rev 9 being a border cop. Technically, like like Grace freeing the prisoners, it's, it's kind of an incidental plot detail in Universe that he's a, a border cop. It's a temporary tactical advantage, not a political commitment. It's just like, like freeing, uh, freeing the prisoners, it's, uh, which is just creating a distraction. It's just the world that they happen to live in and the tactical advantages that they gain in that world rather than being necessarily directly a plot about these things. But at the same time, the symbolism is kind of hard to avoid. And I think it, it kind of speaks to the moral vacuousness of the repressive state apparatus that a Terminator can easily take advantage of that apparatus without being questioned. So Mm -hmm. there's a uniform and you can literally get away with murder. Now, Miller, the director, said the border aspect was not intended as a political commentary. I don't think we have to be bound by directorial intent. It's relevant, but it's not everything.
0: Yeah, I'm calling bullshit here.
2: Yeah, well, I think it's, it's hard to know what his intent here is, but, like, I think there is an element of maybe covering their ass that they don't want the consequences of, of making a political statement, uh, even though it's kind of hard to avoid the symbolism. But anyway, I mean, audience interpretation is largely how meaning is, is produced in practice. Like, I don't think the author is dead completely. It's like the author is half dead. Do you think
0: the author is undead?
2: Yeah, the author is undead. Meaning is socially produced, basically. But that being said, uh, if we are going to look at an intent, um, James Cameron, in his bio written by Rebecca Keegan, uh, he said this about the decision to make T2's villain look like a cop. Quote, The Terminator films are not really about the human race getting killed off by machines. They're about us losing touch with our own humanity and becoming machines, which allows us to kill and brutalize each other. Cops think of all non-cops as less than they are, stupid, weak, and evil. They dehumanize the people they are sworn to protect and desensitize themselves in order to do that job, close quote. So certainly the original decision to have robert patrick as uh, as a cop that was uh, a, a political decision and this movie echoing it i don't know maybe james cameron wrote it in maybe it was just uh it's now established as a trope so we'll do it again and they didn't think about why the trope existed in the first place uh, but certainly, uh, in, in Terminator 2, there was there was a commentary. There.
0: Oh yeah, I mean, he was not just a cop; he was LAPD, a symbol of one yeah. of the 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 yeah. most brutal and racist and yeah. evil cops on the planet.
2: Yeah, yeah, and this is in the 90s with, with, you know, obviously big controversies about police brutality. And again, you've got John Connor in a public enemy shirt, so it's, it's definitely there. Terminator 2 is probably more more of a political, intentional political intervention than this is. But to be fair, these people are upset by one female lead in a Marvel movie after about like a million male leads. So the bar is pretty low. The movies don't have to be radical at all.
0: Yeah, and you, when you look at this in Alien uh, franchise, I mean, these, these are ones that were made famous by their strong female protagonists. Mm. And you don't get tougher than Ripley and Sarah Connor. And for, for this movie to be attacked from the second there was trailers... And you know, it comes down to it starring three strong women and that was too intimidating for their manhoods. And when you look at it, it's well, it's an it's an older woman who is usually erased by Hollywood by that age, who never gets to be in a movie, never gets to be an action star even. And she's there with all all of her grizzledness and and being tough and, and having wrinkles and you have a mexican john connor you have a a very androgynous yet butch hero uh, defending her protecting her and it kind of looked like from the very beginning just seeing this uh, this actress and her haircut was just like an anathema and an insult to them and uh, you know some are calling it woke culture and diversity gone out of control and some are calling it woke fate and you know castration anxiety is a hell of a drug now the the big thing that others are, are really up in arms over that they're taking to spoil everywhere is the death of john connor uh what did you think of john's death
2: It did surprise me, uh, not so much killing him as killing him so young. Critics say it negated the first two movie, and I can sort of understand that, like in a similar vein to to Alien 3 with Newt, where it seemed to sort of chuck out uh, the struggle that we'd just seen. But for me, it sort of worked, because John and Sarah had just won the larger war, so it was a kind of pyrrhic victory, making Sarah Connor kind of a tragic figure. And this might sound overly utilitarian, but the narrative point actually wasn't saving John; it was saving the future. So they still won. It's not that you know an individual's life doesn't matter. But the only reason there was all of this furor over this individual's life was because of their role in the future and in in the lives of many others. So, on those grounds, they still won. They still uh, defeated Skynet. But Skynet's parting shot was a bit of a doozy. So, with a non-linear timeline, you can win the war, but then you take more casualties. Uh, although, I mean, even without time travel, uh, assassinations by historical losers are not unheard of. Lincoln. Yeah, exactly. You can win and still be taken out. And, I mean, the life of a resistance fighter is likely to be marked by tragedy. So, so I kind of buy it. It also marks Sarah's relationships with others. You know, the whole way that, er- that Sarah interacts with everyone in that movie is so marked by what happened to John. So it's not a throwaway moment. Like, in Alien 3, it's sort of... Mm -hmm. It's like a bit of a throwaway moment. and this, it marks the entire story. So I think they kind of earned it. Um, I do kind of agree with the criticism Linda Hamilton raised, which is that she's too passive in the scene. She doesn't really put up a fight. Uh, But that's more a matter of execution than concept. It's not you know you could have done the same scene differently it didn't it didn't discredit the movie for me the way it did for some
0: yeah looking at how the scene went down i don't kind of see how any other way it could have because of you know uh, locations of characters
2: well they chose to put them in those locations
0: that, that's the movie though but i mean for, as far as if you want to look at this as, as the as the uh characters having agency in a, in a universe uh, and the Terminator was between her and John. So it wasn't like she could have just leaped in front and taken the hit and taken the shot for her son and died. And the kid run, uh, the, the Terminator just walked right past her. And it was just like one of those kinds of things. And it made sense to me in a kind of uh, post Kitty Genovese kind of way of how, shock and and freezing when you have ptsd functions and when there's a a a shootout in the middle of like live time that sometimes you just are so dumbfounded and it happens in car accidents it happens in shootings Mm. etc that you'll just freeze there like a squirrel and and then you know it kicks in you know
2: yeah, well, have talked about this with Sarah that like Sarah's PTSD. It's the kind of PTSD is a superpower. Mm-hmm. So usually, usually her she's hyper vigilant, and usually her response is to is to fight kind of thing. Like that's her trauma response. So I think like I can kind of uh, and for me it's one of the better executions of it, even though it's kind of a problematic thing. There, this whole thing of PTSD being so tied with heroism
0: well that's why it's realistic then it failed one time it wasn't yeah, yeah. it wasn't successful every single time as yeah, yeah. a superpower for me that makes it more realistic
2: yeah, yeah. my favorite mm-hmm. example about one of my favorites is is in the in t2 after they've had the whole sh- struggle over the chip mm-hmm. then he arnie is standing guard for the night and then she's standing guard over him uh mm-hmm. so it's this extreme hyper-vigilance, like she's always, always ready to fight kind of thing.
0: Yeah, that's one of those kinds of scenes that's funny, but not campy. You know, it's like, you get it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if you've seen the new Alien and how... Uh, Alien Covenant? I mean, not Alien. The The new Halloween that uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, it's very... She plays uh even less functional PTSD, hyper-vigilant character.
2: And the prepper thing as well. They're they're both very much preppers.
0: I think she plays a more realistic version of what Linda Hamilton was playing because she's less socially functional. Whereas Linda Hamilton's character was using it as a superpower. This is like this person is hyper ready and hyper vigilant and good with the weapons and good with the fighting, but they lost their whole family. They pushed everybody away. There's hints of that in T2. The son is like, you were terrible as a mother. You trained me to be this leader for the resistance, but where were you as as a mom and stuff? So, you know, there's that commentary in T2. Because
2: that that was present. I thought that she did kind of drive, drive them away. But back to that scene in dark fate, Mm -hmm. have to win. I'm not saying the sort of heroic thing where like um, she has to win and not be, you know, not have agency in that sense. It's more that like after it happened, I kind of feel like before grieving, she would have just wanted to throw everything at the Terminator. Basically, she would have preferred to probably go down,
0: get a few shots off, yeah, and
2: pass kind of thing. Like it, it mm-hmm. felt. That she just sort of let him leave, and then and sort of grieved for John. It didn't. It didn't feel like the way she responds to those kinds of traumatic situations. I, I think you have a point. You know, sometimes you might freeze rather than fighting, and she doesn't have to be like a perfect superhero
0: all the time. It was James Cameron's idea to kill uh, John at the beginning of the mm-hmm. movie, and uh, I was never super bothered with the loss of Newton Hicks. In Alien 3, and it because it it made it, it made the movie feel fatalistic and real, and it gave the ending its own finality and a pyrrhic victory of taking out that queen.
2: Yeah, I just didn't think Fincher and co conveyed the weight of it enough, whereas I think in Dark Fate they did convey the weight of it enough, like on balance, I think Mm -hmm. it was was well done, and as say, especially the fact that. It so affected how she interacted with Carl, how she interacted with Grace, with Danny. Like, it was, it so shaped her as a character. Whereas I felt like with Ripley it's just like, well, it's another trauma on the list of traumas, but it doesn't really, it just feels like a throwaway moment. It should be more significant that like a child, a child was killed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, whereas I think in Dark Fate, they did kind of convey the significance of that more.
0: People miss that they won, like you said. And mm-hmm. a fix would have been explaining the new future better. And uh, as we said also, T3 robs T2 of that victory. And uh, that the meaning of the whole movie, philosophically, in the no fate and uh surviving against you know survival against terminators is temporary as long as they are out there and that is horrifying and i think that if you look at the first movie this kind of removes it to that horror element of like you could die at any second you know this guy's not going to stop he's going to come for you it's relentless and you know that's horrifying and here you know being snuffed out at, at such a young age but you know, he almost did not get to be born in the first place. So you know, he he was the son of a guy from an erased or alternate future. Or what what else was he going to do with his life now that they won? He was trained to be the leader of of the resistance in a future that did not happen or will not happen. But uh, how about Terminator Carl? The asexual family man uh, with the drapery business. This Terminator, he gets to be the successful Terminator finally after all these movies, to kill John Connor, and the war was already over, and he moves on and uh, helps uh, Sarah uh, go after the rest of the Terminators coming back, and it really looks like Skynet likely sent a bunch of clustered fixed points, you know, at a bunch of fixed. Uh, Points between T1 and T2 in 1998 and somewhere in there. But, you know, now, you know, they were likely infiltrators anchored to the timeline before the changes uh, by T2. And so, like, maybe they were sleeper agents like on the TV show. And I think uh, Skynet just sent sent a bunch back uh, whenever Sarah went off the grid, maybe in 84 when... uh, Sarah had John, and the irony was her being locked up after doing all this training, and John ending up in a foster home allowed the T-1000 to zero in on them from them being in the system now. And again, others must have just uh, hibernated. And so I'm thinking like future John sent T-2 Arnie back because he knew T-1000, Carl, and who knows what else was sent back by Skynet in a last-ditch effort. Uh, Ironically, uh, Skynet ensured its existence in the future in the first place because the leftover Terminator parts from uh, Terminator 1 were used to create Skynet and T-2. And something that always nagged me in T2, obviously, that was slightly retconned things about only organic material going back uh, with the T-1000 just coming back as a metal guy. And I was always thinking, you know, how is liquid metal flesh? And whereas, you know, the, the other Terminators, at least they have skin on top of exoskeleton or endoskeleton
2: mm. although it does make me wonder why they didn't just send flesh backwards you know like leave the leave the exoskeleton in the in the future and, and send the flesh back to the present. yeah they could have sent
0: like replicants more like uh blade runner you know that were more organic mm. synthetic organic i was just thinking know.
2: about how it could have gone terribly wrong <laughs> with the technology. yeah
0: just a puddle of flesh dump
2: lands, lands
0: out of on. the circle on the
2: concrete yeah
0: but you know i'm thinking like well okay maybe the way you could rationalize the the, the t1000 and the the rev 9 is that like he's a nano builder and he could just build a layer of flesh you know as he goes through but you know i think it just shows that you know they had such an awesome idea of how to visualize and make the t1000 they were like hey let's don't think about it let's just make the movie
2: full of color that was cool.
0: Yeah, you know, it makes sense that Carl the Terminator was the same model as T two Arnie, and that he grew as a person after successfully killing John, and that he would help Sarah because he he knew when and where uh, all these other Terminators were were popping in at, and he's you know he saved a lot of lives and switched sides in the war there and so like like i was thinking you know he's look at all the people that he saved that just looking at the first movie of all those sarah connors in the phone book that died and the precinct shootout which was i would say the best part in the first movie and uh, there's a nice little callback to that of you know not putting a hundred cops between you and the terminator (laughs) And again, I always thought that that shootout at The Precinct was a nod to John Carpenter's Precinct Under Siege movie, and I thought it was disappointing, though, that he, too, Arnie, only kneecapped Cops.
2: Yeah, I think that kind of flows from Cameron's concerns about dehumanization we talked about. And while he's critical of Cops, he's, he's a left liberal. He's not a hardline communist. So it's that kind of pacifistic idea of, of not becoming what you hate, I think it's there's an element of false equivalence there but also it's i mean it's there's some interesting ideas there for a hollywood movie to explore i mean i think sarah's crisis over of a kind of utilitarian morality and potentially killing an innocent for the greater good is stuff that's worth thinking about uh, even if you know he's he's coming from a kind of a left liberal perspective, I, I mean, also the whole idea that Carl was a more reliable father than human men kind of kind of echoed T2. The whole reform, yeah. And for me, the greatest strength of these movies was never Arnie, really. It was it was Linda Hamilton and James Cameron, who were married at the time of T2, but. Arnie did the job, as he always does, uh, and the Reformed Terminator Act kind of works for me. Uh, It's the micro level of no fate, I think, the possibility of change. So you've got no fate, which is the possibility of averting the apocalypse, and then no fate, which is the possibility of behavior changing and people's relationships changing. And I did find it a bit frustrating that after the thaw of Arnie and Sarah's relationship in T2, we're back to square one. Uh, even if it was kind of justified with this being a different version, I especially thought with her having been guided to take out so many Terminators that that would kind of factor into things that, like, mm-hmm. yes, obviously gonna have trouble forgiving someone who killed her son absolutely but she's also a utilitarian she's a soldier and this is someone who spent 20 years uh, actually helping her fight her fight and now they're
0: on the same side yeah
2: yeah it's it, it sort of i mean i bought it and the, at the level that she's hyper vigilant and he did kill her son but it was just a bit frustrating it felt like we've come there's been this development that's happened in t2
0: well, maybe I look at it as she's not so much just mad at him, but it's kind of like
2: yeah.
0: it, when you look at her mission or Kyle's, uh, then when Kyle died, it was like, Sarah, you had one job. Mm. Make sure your son grow- lives long enough and grows up to be the the leader of the resistance. They, after everything they did after blowing up Cyberdyne, mm. He 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 just gets killed. She has no mission now, and 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 the only mission she has has been to get revenge by killing all these other Terminators. And who's been helping her take out all these Terminators? Mm-hmm. The one that killed her son. So I, I think there's there's some there's some complexity of character there that is possibly being streamlined.
2: Thing is, I really like that in the first movie. I really like that she's so so vigilant in the first movie and will not let her guard down around him Uh, I think what frustrates me is just seeing the sort of reset and this is part of the problem with continuing the series Mm. is that if like it's resetting the switch and then having the same development happen again so at the end she kind of forgives him you know you have his self-sacrifice it's like an identical narrative beat to t2 when he sort of lowers himself into the you know the liquid metal so it just it just felt like frustrating and redundant and like we'd already been through this and that they were you know, that it was the same thing of having to see their relationship with Thor and the hypervigilance and all that. So yeah, that was just I mean, but that's just an inherent problem I think of of sequels is you know, I'm not sure there's actually that much to add to the story at this point.
0: And it's ironic because the first movie had the structure of a slasher film. And this has gone on to yeah. the amount of of sequels is like a, of a Jason movie or a Freddy movie or something. We're at Terminator 6 here. And, and there's been so many reboots. And it's 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 actually much closer to Halloween, how they've constantly had to keep redoing Halloween over and over.
2: Yeah, retconning
0: all the time. But again, I, I think, I guess if anything let me down in this, uh, and, and again, I wasn't let down. I was very shocked at john's death and i just kind of let it sit with me and tried to see where where this movie's going with it you know and i felt like it i think it it was justified story-wise i i think it it fit within the story and it fit within what happened in the movie before and in overall Mm. of the whole story i think if you look at this as a trilogy about this time war and all this stuff about trying to stop the future and everything like we've been talking about. I I think that that has a lot of meaning and it has a lot of resonance and his death is not just for nothing. It wasn't just like a throwaway. But again, I think what let me down was that, okay, when when they explained that the future didn't happen with the Skynet version, uh, they just, they just, were like, oh no, it was just Legion is a different computer that took over a couple decades later, and he also built Terminators, and he also built uh, HKs and time travel assassinations. That's a lot of coincidences of the same things occurring in a different timeline that kind of makes you f- feel like T3 all over again. The future just got pushed back to a different date. Things just keep happening all the same every time. But now this is a completely different robot or different AI and all of Dyson's research, plus Dr. Silberman's notes uh, from the first precinct on Reese and from Sarah in the records. And he built everything as it built a career in, in psychology and stuff. So they had to have had all kinds of stuff of psych records and universities and on the internet and i also think given the events of the first movie the fact that this robot from the future that everybody was mentioning was a cyberdyne model cyberdyne was an existing company you know somebody had to clean up after and cover up all these events you know maybe the military got ideas you know so uh Ironically, maybe the past fight against Skynet makes Legion possible. And then you have Sarah training the new leader. You have that new symmetry of of the rise of the machine and the rise of the new leader. Maybe awareness of Skynet made Legion possible. And, you know, the only thing I think the T3 did right was that they had the Air Force just seize Cyberdyne's, uh, defense patents and continue the work and just push off the date. So like, I would add more folds of like constant future changing, altering the fortunes for each side based on time travel, you know, as uh, just as what was portrayed in Frank Miller's surprisingly good dark horse crossover comic Robocop versus Terminator of all things where the future kept changing for better or worse based on the fight in the past and there was like one future where skynet won and even built futures to uh built ships to uh conquer the galaxy not unlike the borg and then there was like another one where everything was just kind of a anarcho-primitivist future because the humans won and there's no technology there was just like all kinds of changes because of the constant fighting and so i'm like thinking maybe five eight times out of ten the future is ai singularity but how or if we lose is not fate and sometimes we coexist with the machines even you know it's like make it constantly diverse have a diverse possible alternate future
2: Yeah, part of the problem is it's a Hydra, so whether it's a causal loop or not, you're dealing with the US military-industrial complex, this massive public-private partnership, Uh, that's one of the main places R&D happens in the world, there's always somebody else working on military AI, Uh, but luckily there's no fate but what we make. So I guess Sarah, Connor, and co. just have to move on from individual terrorism to expropriating the weapons industry.
0: (laughs) And uh, from a story standpoint, the idea of uh, Skynet is from two sources. Uh, One is I Have No Mouth Yet I Must Scream by Harlan Ellison and uh colossus the forbin project i forget the author which is i think there might have been two books there was one movie uh it was about supercomputers taking over uh in the novel and the movie colossus uh was a military ai uh that was going online that goes sentient and pulls a skynet and threatens humanity into world peace you know, with its own rules. And again, that's kind of like basically what happened in, uh, Ultron, uh, Avengers two was like, well, you know, the only way to get world peace with the humans is to force them into it. And, you know, the twist in the end of that one is the Soviet union built, uh, an AI as well. And the two AIs link up against humanity and that trope as well happens in the terminator, RoboCop crossover as well as in J.J. Abrams' Person of Interest show that had AIs going online. There was one like in China or Russia that linked up with uh, the American one. So that's an idea that people keep stealing from this Colossus book as if it's public domain. And uh, it was going to be a movie like maybe five years ago. They were going to remake it. But uh, this is where a lot of these ideas of AIs taken over and then of course you have movies like uh later like war games i i think that twist though with the the ai's linking up against humanity would be pretty cool like maybe legion's a different one or something and like maybe legion came about from the current quantum computing arms race between the u.s and and china you know gone horribly wrong you know and somebody just like turned it on too early or whatever and this happened. Another missed opportunity was to go crazy with the designs for of, of robots built by robots. I mean, The Matrix did that and Terminator Salvation dabbled with that idea. But overall, like, a lot of the robots are humanoid.
2: Yeah, I mean, one thing I, I didn't like about Salvation, though, is, is we without the, the kind of present day anachronism or infiltration, uh, the the whole robot apocalypse is less relatable so mm-hmm. there's less sense of a kind of palpable threat with a stranger knocking on a suburban door even a stranger in uniform knocking on a suburban door uh, but also you mentioned the humanoid thing and and salvation there was that giant biped robot which seemed pretty nonsensical to me uh, like the only reason to design a biped as far as I can tell is to infiltrate human society like a giant biped is a very is a very poor design otherwise and they already had like uh, other other designs which make more sense like you know the colors and stuff so I mean I enjoy in Sky in Captain World of tomorrow when they they shoot at the giant biped robot and it doesn't work. So they just run for the legs and knock it over. And I double-checked the the salvation scene on YouTube, and they they do also sensibly go for the legs. But it's obviously played a lot more serious. And as you say, these are robots designed by robots. Uh, They should be more rationally designed, you would think. So that mix of being nonsensical and being super serious doesn't really work in that movie. I think if you're going to be nonsensical, at least have fun with it.
0: Yeah, I'm like have utilitarian robots, you know, robots that that carry out specific tasks and stuff. Therefore, they would be shaped accordingly, you know. And uh, the the most laughable ones are the are the Ducati motorcycle Terminators, because it's like a human's able to just hack them and ride it as a motorcycle. Mm. But it goes to the to the roots of. Of, of what where all these jumbled ideas come from that, that Cameron put into a gumbo and made it into a great story was that this idea of a, a series of increasingly better infiltration assassination robots is actually that was mentioned at the beginning of Terminator. and you see it in the flashbacks uh, is actually from Philip K. Dick's short story second variety and that was turned into the movie screamers in the mid 90s and i read the i read the story years ago and actually the way everything's described it's a post-apocalyptic world that it's the same kind of bombed out world described at the beginning of the terminator movies except it was a war between america and uh, the soviet union and like leftover war robots are still going, even though the countries themselves collapsed into the ruins. So the survivors are having to fight off these ever evolving uh, underground uh, robots that keep trying to infiltrate where the human survivors are and to wipe them out. It's a pretty good story. The movie's not that bad. And over the sequels, you know, they've tried to have the Terminators uh, going after John Evolve, you know, obviously with T2, T3, you know, that kind of, kind of ran out, ran out of steam by Genesis, I guess. You just throw nanites over everything, but, you know, there should have been more robot evolution overall. And the Legion timeline could have reflected that, especially in those flash forwards. Because that looked very much like the usual future, except for instead of shiny chrome terminators, uh, these guys, or at least the Rev 9s, are a little more gun gray, and gun metal. And, you know, Cameron got the time travel idea also from another story by Harlan Ellison, the episode of The Outer Limits called The Demon with the Glass Hand, where a guy not unlike Reese has to go back in time from a future where aliens, rather than robots, have taken over the world and he has to go back in time and protect the woman and convince her that he's from the future and help her. And the aliens send killers that look human uh, back after them. And even the idea of a good Terminator ties into an old episode about a brainwashed super soldier in the future fighting his programming to do good and it had a lot of parallels with good good arnie good terminator and like i was thinking like there's a lot of opportunities missed here of like we never see how skynet is personalized until genesis and i think you know Maybe Skynet's whole flaw was being designed by humans. And I'm thinking like in the future, like in this new version, what if there's like human traitors, you know, working for Legion? So there are human characters with personality in the future to conflict with since an AI is so abstract, uh, you know, rather than letting the robot talk or the AI talk. So I'm just thinking there's just so many possibilities. Uh, hello? What the f-
2: Fuck? Derek? Hello? Got some kind of dial-up sound? Yo? Dusting. Hear you, you're fuzzy.
0: That's not me. Actually, it is a different version. What? When are you? What? Month and year. What? November 2019, of course. Perfect. I'm calling you from November 2020, uh, No Fate Project HQ. Uh, we, We can send communications back, but not people. You have one year to avert. The red brown zombie plague. I've sent proof. That tape? Yes, the tape.
2: Why didn't you save future us?
0: We figured hearing your own deaths would be a pretty good motivator. That's cold, dude. Greater good, dude. You're gonna erase that timeline anyway. And why aren't you dead? Do I have to say it? You've said it like 50 times, it's written on your arms.
2: I feel called out. Am I alive in your timeline? Derek?
0: No more questions. I guess we should stock up on guns? That's a question. And uh, where you're going, you don't need guns. I understood that reference. No shit, nerd, it was a massive blockbuster. Who hurt him? You did. We've developed a cure, but our former comrade, Professor Don Levy, has stolen it and plans to sell it at a jacked up price. Cream, capitalism ruins everything around me. Your mission, and you have to accept it, is to steal the cure from the No Fate HQ before Don Levy does. When you get Ugh, that's a wiretap. We'll send you the details by snail mail. How do I hang up the phone? This is a podcast. Do you believe all that? Pascal's Wager? Better safe than dead. And I don't have any other explanation.
2: Let's cut this off and talk on Messenger. That tone is annoying the fuck out of me. Okay,
0: just on a final note to our listeners, if you set up a monthly contribution on Patreon you can help avert the zombie apocalypse. Good night, and good luck, and see you in the future. You have
1: seen this incident based on sworn testimony. Can you prove that it didn't happen? We once laughed at the horseless carriage, the aeroplane, the telephone, the electric light, vitamins, radio, and even television. And now some of us laugh at outer space. God help us in the future. Saturday morning, I take a turn at the skillet. I burn some eggs, boil coffee, drink a cup and refill it. I read some pages of the paper, mostly look at the pictures. There's a drip at the faucet, so I fumble with the fix. We take our own showers, wash our own hair. Make our own beds, push in our own chairs. I thought all this stuff would get done for me. A robot mows along while I sit under a tree. I thought we'd control wind and rain, cure all sickness, eliminate pain. I wanted mind reading gadgets to cater to my wishes. Wanna self-cleaning kitchens and not sticking dishes. Where's the end of all freedom from disease? Where's the milk and honey see you see, shine and see? And where are the crime-free cities? Rockets on our backs, so we're on the school moving sidewalks. And hey, where's my jetpack? Yeah. A hovercraft in every drive. to breakfast on the table at 6:45. and the pull of a level Heaven on Earth in a God-free zone where we all get along and no one's alone A paradise of plenty where nobody lacks we all flying around with our own jet packs Where's the end? M- kitchen, monkeys on my back, we're on the monorails and sky trams, here is my jet, Heaven on earth in a God-free zone, where we all get along and no one's alone. There's plenty where nobody lacks We all flying around with our own jet (laughs) packs